and for your glory. And he would do so delighting in and trusting in the redemption that you have provided in your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, applied to us by the Holy Spirit who also sustains us and helps us to have eyes and ears to see and hear of the glories of redemption and our Savior and our God who has orchestrated it all. Capture our minds with these truths. We need you to do that. Apart from your spirit, your book is to us a closed book, but by you, Holy Spirit, they become the very words of life, the very window into heavenly glories, the very promises on which we stand, and the light unto our path. And so we pray that as we open your word this morning, your word would do its work in us, both savingly and in its work of sanctification. And we ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 as we come back again to what we have titled, or I guess I have titled, uh, A Sight of Sovereign Glory, A Sight of Sovereign Glory. A a little glimpse that we have uh, that will take up chapters 4 and 5 into the heavenly throne room to see the glory of God and Him who sits on it, the God who is coming Let me begin by reminding you of a famous quote uh, by A.W. Tozer. Many of you are familiar with it. It comes from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a a little book by him. It's very popular. But he says these very insightful words that relate to our message this morning. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, and the worshiper entertains, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We as individuals and we as a culture and we as a nation and we as a church will never rise higher than our thoughts of God. That is proven itself through the history of man and through the history of the church. And so our thoughts of God and knowing God as he actually is in truth and his majesty and holiness as well as his compassion and his mercy in his coming judgment as well as his bringing of salvation for his people. All of these things that are true of God shape our thoughts of God and shape therefore our worship and they shape our lives. And so it's important that we think rightly about God. And John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps to inform and possibly correct for some of us an understanding of who God really is so that we can properly conceive in our hearts and in our minds, as A.W. Tozer said, a right view of God. And so rightly approach Him, rightly worship Him, rightly sing to Him, rightly follow Him, rightly obey Him. In order to do that, let's look again at Revelation chapter 4 and to see this glimpse that he's going to give us in chapters 4 through 5, as I mentioned before, of the heavenly throne room of God. 
And again, as we get this glimpse and as he gives us this glimpse into the heavenly throne room, he is preparing us for everything else that is to come. He's establishing who God is before he displays what God is going to do at the end of the age. So let's read the chapter in its entirety. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said... Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man... And the fourth creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created. Such is the window that Scripture gives us into the unseen realities of the glory of God and the image of God that He wants us to grasp as we come to Him and consider His revelation to us. Now, as I noted before, we looked last week at the sight of sovereign glory. The sight of sovereign glory, the first peak inside this window. The first peak inside this anticipation of the one who is going to come and establish his rule and his kingdom upon the earth. By way of reminder, John begins this in verse 1, the very first phrase, after these things. And he ends verse 1 with after these things. And we noted that after these things in the first mention is after these things in the sequence of the revelation itself, the vision itself, after the vision of the twelve churches that the exalted Christ had given him, he now moves into this second vision of the things to come, probably some time lapsed between the first vision and this vision. And the last phrase, after these things, is demonstrating those things, the actions that God is going to place, and this is looking to the future things that are to come. And he says that, I will show you what must take place after these things. So he's making a time distinction. These things that he saw and just revealed in the message to the seven churches, and these things that are going to come upon the earth after the end end of that age and preparing for the destruction to come on the ungodly. 
And so he is preparing us now then to say, and who is the one who is going to bring about these things? And again in verse 2, immediately he is in the Spirit, who is the one empowering this envision, who is the one enabling John to have this prophetic sight, this vision into these heavenly realities. And he is in the Spirit, and the behold, and the first thing we noted that he sees, the first thing to capture his attention, what is going to be the very theme throughout this entire vision is this, in the middle of verse 2, a throne, a throne, a throne is standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. It is this throne that captures his attention throughout and and the things that are around the throne and the activities that are happening around the throne are not to be a distraction from the throne but are meant to point our gaze more fully to the majesty of the throne and the one who sits on the throne himself. It is this throne that is the center of the entire vision and him who sits on the throne. And who is sitting on the throne? who is sitting on the throne, is defined throughout Revelation as God. Most distinctly, it is God the Father who shares this throne also with the exalted Christ. So he'll say in chapter 5, when we get there, it's him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that is a consistent refrain throughout Revelation. To him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb who is on the throne with him. Just as Jesus had said to the church at Laodicea in verse 21. That those will overcome, will sit with him on his throne as he overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So it is a throne of God with the father there and the son by his side at his right hand sharing divine glory. So it is a throne occupied by the father and shared with the son. Now he leaves us there in verse 2. Merely at the end of one sitting on the throne. And then in verse 3, he begins a description then of everything that he sees. And it is a description that is breathtaking. That is breathtaking. They are representations of the beauties and the sights and the sounds and the glory that define an exact one-to-one correspondence with anything that we can know in this created world. The best is, that can be given is that it is a likeness to things that we may be familiar with, but those things that they are compared to are not the fullness of this divine glory. Words cannot capture all that his mind is taking in and is seeing. Such is the divine glory of God. But he is in this vision going to give us a picture of the throne itself, those who are around the throne, and the activity that surrounds the throne. And that is, again, meant to establish then the glory of him who sits on it. So let's look then at the description of sovereign glory. And he begins with a description of his appearance. He says in verse 3, And he who was sitting, that is sitting on the throne, was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. Now notice first of all that there's not a direct or detailed account of his person. John is very specific as is all of scripture not to give a direct image, not to give any description of a form, merely to describe what it's like, the sense of the presence of the one who is on the throne. So he uses the repeated term translated here as likeness. 
not only is a physical description of the Father and of God in His glory impossible, the very idea of it would be to diminish Him to the level of some created thing, of making Him in some kind of idol, something like creation, which is forbidden by God. You'll remember the Ten Commandments, the very first thing. You shall not make a likeness of Him in any image, any created thing. Nothing that attempts to be an image of him can reflect his glory, it would be, in fact, to diminish him and make an idol of him. And while God manifests himself in various ways and his presence in various ways, ultimately, in his divine glory and character in the person of Christ, of course, who is the image of God, the essential glory of God, the essential nature of his being, cannot be beheld by any created thing in the fullness of its glory. So Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, who alone, speaking of God, possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. That is, in the very essence of his being. He is infinite and finite, can never fully take in the majesty of what is infinite in its nature. And so it is God. And so he doesn't describe him directly. He describes the impression, the imagery, the, the, the sense that he gets coming in here. And he says, one who was sitting on the throne like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And what is a jasper stone and a sardis? Jasper stones often, if you were to Google it, are green and red. But here how it is described as having an appearance that is neither green nor red, which are going to be taken up by the Sardis stone and the emerald halo around the throne, but rather, as one captures the idea, it appears to have been a translucent-like glass or rock crystal. And in fact, the same stone, the Jasper stone, is described in the final city, the New Jerusalem to come, in verse 11 of chapter 21, in those very terms. Speaking of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, he says that having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And that's the sense here. Sardis is a stone that is red in color and it is meant to be reflected, this red and sort of flashing colors around the throne, giving a sense of the majesty of God. He says, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Many of you have the translation as rainbow, uh, but this is some difficulty in seeing it. When we think of a rainbow, we think of the different colors. I don't know if y'all saw it the other night. There was, after the storm, a rainbow. It has the spectrum of light. Here, a better translation is probably of halo, as it's somewhere taken, it's sometimes taken like that. Not because there's not a division of light, but the, the sense of this term is that there's an arc or a circle of light colored with the emerald color that surrounds the throne and surrounds him who is on the throne. That's the sense here. Like an emerald halo in appearance surrounding these colors of clear crystal and from red. Each of these stones actually is what are used to describe the glories of the heavenly new Jerusalem. And the point here is to provide a link between the throne and him who sits on it and the final promise that ultimately is going to come. This is an anticipation of it. The one who made the promises is going to bring it about. These colors and these images and these these flashings and sounds that are surrounding this throne are meant to give an assurance to his people, his suffering people, that he's going to bring his promise about. There's the throne. What is around the throne? He says that in verse 4. 
He says, there is around the throne, first, 24 thrones, and upon the thrones, 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden, with golden crowns on their head. That's who is around the throne. We'll come back to that. But let's first see what is around the throne as far as the physical description in verse 5. We'll jump to that. He says, Out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, around the throne. And then four living creatures. He says there are seven lampstands burning before the throne. We were already introduced to this imagery back in chapter 1. The seven spirits that are before God in verse 4. The seven spirits who are before his throne. In chapter 10 we see the spirit who is speaking to John, who is representative of those seven spirits that are before the throne. And it's the seven spirits then that are going to give the, the, the message to the seven churches. And after the end of each church, you remember, listen to what the Spirit says. It's here meant to give a sense of the comprehensive, animating glory of the Holy Spirit before God the lamp stands here, taken from the imagery of Zechariah 4. We won't go back there. And the menorah that is in the holy place just inside the temple is being picked up here by John in the imagery of lamp stands. So if you were to walk in the tabernacle and then the temple, you'd enter into the door. You'd be the holy place. There'd be a veil and then there'd be the most holy place. In that holy place, there was the showbread, there was the incense, and there was a menorah. It was what gave light to that whole inner room. It was the only source of light in that holy place and here that sense of God's presence which those uh, that light was meant to symbolize is here identified with the Holy Spirit who is before this throne giving a sense of the divine presence presence the divine empowerment of the vision there may be a sense here with the flames of the anticipation of judgment that is to come the seven as we noted before is related not only to the number of churches and the plagues that will come, it gives a sense of wholeness, fullness, comprehensiveness, knowledge, power, this permeating presence through all of creation and all of the glories of heaven. He says before the throne there is a sea, like glass, like crystal. Now the sea here is not a massive, a symbol of the mass of humanity. That term is used in that way in prophetic passages in chapter 13. It's not the imagery here. Here the sea is meant to give a sense of the very large space that separates the throne from everything else that surrounds it. From the vantage point of John and from the other beings. It is meant to give a sense of the singular glory and the majesty of God who is set far apart from everything else in his throne. Meant to give a distinct sense of his majesty, his holiness. And along with the brightness and the glory of the jasper and the sardis and the emerald halo that is surrounding the throne, it gives an astounding sense of, the ref of color and of beauty as these reflections are glimmering and off of this crystal clear sea that surrounds the throne. There's brilliant color and light, perfectly ordered and captivating the senses, which is the intention here. Also coming out from the throne, he says, are peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, sounds. 
all of these filling out the whole sense of John in this vision and the physical description of the throne coming out of flashes of lightning, sounds, and thunder. The picture is of brilliant flashes of light streaming out, being sourced from this throne, sounds that he doesn't even define. But thunder, we can understand, is the deep rolling sense that would shake the very air and the ground that he was standing on. Now, we don't get this here in Connecticut. I grew up in central Florida. Some of you have been to Florida. Some of the favorite parts of the storms that you get there. And these storms, when they come in, and it's very flat, so where you can look off in the distance and sometimes see the lightning in all its forms, sometimes making contact with the ground, sometimes lightning that goes from cloud to cloud in these magnificent uh, lightning storms, and it lights up everything uh, around it. And then you count how long until you hear the thunder to know how close the storm is. And sometimes it's this rolling thunder and these billowing dark clouds that shake everything. That's a sense here of these lightning flashes and the deep rolling thunder all emanating from the throne here. That they flow out as a present tense and the idea is it's continually flowing out. It's not in pauses. It's not like a little bit of thunder and a little bit of lightning and then you wait a little while and then it may happen again as in thunderstorms. It is a continual sense of this flowing of these flashes of this light, this brightness that lights up the sky with all of the other colors and the halo and the, crisp and the jasper around the throne and it's continually coming out from the throne emanating again a sense of divine glory, a sense of holy majesty meant to communicate the awesome presence of God. It's similar to what God, how God revealed himself to his people. If you'll remember, at Sinai, and there's almost certainly meant to be that imagery that wells up in the mind of John and those who read this. When God wanted to reveal himself to his people, and impress upon them the majesty of his being so that they would fear sinning, so that they would know who the God is who redeemed them. It says when he came on Sinai, it's described in this way in verse 16, it came about on the third day when there was morning, there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp, they trembled, they trembled. At the sight of this God who had come near, a holy God, a majestic God. This imagery is also used very often in Scripture. We won't turn to those places to speak of coming judgment. And judgment of God is often spoken of in the sense of, of clouds, of thick clouds and lightnings and things that he sends before him to defeat and to rout his enemies. And that's the primary sense here. And in fact, he's going to use the same imagery throughout when he's anticipating the judgments to come, the both describing the judgments and the anticipation of the judgment. Let me give you a few. In chapter 8, verse 5, the angel took the censer. He filled it with fire from the altar. He threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Great, great glory. In chapter 11, verse 19, the temple which is in heaven was opened. The covenant, the ark of his covenant appeared. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. In chapter 16, the same. 
Anticipating judgment, there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. Here those same profound and awe-inspiring senses are surrounding the throne and immediately presented to John and to us. So the composite picture that he felt and that we are meant to feel with him is a sense of this deep, majestic, holiness, a sense of the awesome presence of God. Lightning emanating from his throne, the emerald green halo, the seven lampstands burning before the throne. All of this meant to introduce us to the one who is to come. Now let's go back to the description of those who are around the throne. That's the physical throne itself. He says in verse 4, Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So the very first beings that are brought to his attention are these 24 elders that are surrounding the throne. It's possible here that as John is giving these descriptions that we could form a picture of concentric circles that he's, that he's seeing what's further out and then he's moving in and moving in closer to the throne as we get eventually to the four living creatures. It's possible. These elders are here. They're presented again in chapter 5 and again in chapter 11, worshiping God for his coming reign upon the earth in verses 15 through 18. They're presented again in chapter 19, verse 4, just before the judgment of the great harlot that is to come upon the earth before Christ's physical return. It's significant that they're before the throne. How does he describe them? Well, he describes them first in their number of 24, of sitting on thrones and then clothed in white garments and golden crowns upon their head. The white garments, again, as we've already encountered this, white is a picture of holiness and purity. We see white in the hair of Christ, white in the, clo- the garments of righteousness that the saints are clothed with. White is the cloud that Christ sits on when he returns. White is the horse that he rides when he brings judgment at the end in his kingdom. White is the holy throne of judgment at the very end of the revelation, the great white throne judgment of God. White expresses holiness, it expresses purity. Here it does the same. These white garments were also what was promised to those who overcome in chapter 3, verse 5. They're also at times worn by angels in chapter 15, 6, of an angel clothed in clean, bright, and white linen. Here is golden crowns on their heads. These crowns are symbols of authority. Christ himself wears a golden crown. The other, uh, in chapter 14, verse 14. In this description of Christ, one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Here the picture is of authority assigned to them by Christ only to be returned in an act of worship in identifying the the superior greatness of him who is the source of all authority. In chapter 10, they cast their crowns before the throne. But who are they? That's really the question. Who are they? Well, there's two broad categories in identifying these 24 elders. There's categories that put them in human categories, saying that they are humans that are before the throne, some kind of human representation or human beings. 
and other categories that they are uh, angelic beings with a particular identification. And we're clearly not going to go through all of the back and forth of these. Let me just tell you that if human, the the suggestions generally include that they are significant Old Testament saints or that they're New Testament saints in the church or that they represent the redeemed of all ages. If angelic suggestions include the Old Testament priests, there's elders of Israel, sons of Aaron's as well that are mentioned in 1 Chronicles and Exodus that are the number 24. There's Levites who are gatekeepers in 1 Chronicles 26 and singers. Some suggest that they're either priests or a part of the, the, the priestly class and the Levite class of Old Testament Israel who are offering here pure worship. Some say, again, they're faithful of all the ages, and some see a special class of angels. There's more, but those are the main ones. It's probably not the faithful of all the ages, since in chapter 5, verse 8, they are holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of all the saints, and seem to be having there even some kind of mediatorial or representative function. They're separate from the saints that are of the tribulation period. In verse 13, you remember John asked who it is before the throne. And it's one of the elders who tells him these are those who came out of the tribulation. They're distinguished as well from the redeemed of Israel who also are saved during this seven-year period. In chapter 14, it says that in verse 3, And they sang a new song, the redeemed, the 144,000, before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. So it's probably not the redeemed of all time, simply because they're regularly distinct from the redeemed of all time and those who will be redeemed in the future. As to the description of white garments and golden crowns, these are variously shared by angels, saints, and even Christ himself. Holy angels are shown to be in white garments at the resurrection of Christ. They're part of the heavenly vision, as I already mentioned in chapter 15, verse 6. An angel clothed in white linen, clean and bright. The term for crown is associated with conquering or overcoming. It is the crown that is on the head of the angel, conquering and and bringing the judgment of God. In chapter 6, verse 2, there is a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. There's a crown on the head, same term, symbolic of Israel in chapter 12, verse 1. There's even golden crowns on the heads of demons in chapter 9, verse 7. And there's a golden crown on the head of Christ. We just read it in chapter 14. There's crowns on the head of overcomers who are described as the crown of life. We've looked at that in chapter 2, verse 10. What about the elders? Elders could simply here have the sense of a council, a group of council, maybe even a heavenly council before the Lord, such as is mentioned in Psalm 89, verse 7, or 1 Kings chapter 22. It's also a term used to speak of Old Testament saints. In Hebrews 11 term, too, a lot of the translations have men of old. It's presbyteroi is the name there, is elder. It's used of New Testament apostles in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's not specifically used, however, of angels. In Revelation, it's used only to refer to this special group who are before the throne. It's used several times always to to mark the identity of these 24 elders on thrones before the throne. What about on what they sit? The thrones speak of authority. 
And it's promised to the overcomers that they will sit on Christ's throne with him. We read that in chapter 3, verse 21. The apostles will be sitting on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel in Matthew 19. But these thrones are distinct from the thrones that will be established after Christ's return in Revelation 24. Those who will sit on those thrones who have still yet to give their life to be beheaded for their testimony of Christ. Thrones are sometimes connected to angels. In Colossians 1.16, he is the creator of thrones and dominions. They are speaking of the angelic world. So who are they? Who are they? Well, to be quite honest, it's hard to be exactly precise. But I would suggest this. Who are they? Are they angels or humans, the church of Israel or all? Well, since they are clearly distinguished from tribulation saints, from redeemed Israel from the tribulation, and are likely set apart from the rest of creation in worship in chapter 5, verse 13, since they also present the prayers of the saints, participate in Revelation to John in seven thirteen. it was one of the elders who explained the vision to him, and because they are before the throne, but are not the thrones that are established after Christ's return, And yet, since they also wear golden crowns associated with Christ and white garments associated with those who overcome in the immediate context, I mentioned that in chapter 3, verse 5, it seems best to me, and most likely, although you can't be dogmatic on this, but it seems best to see them as a council of angelic beings who represent the church and possibly Old Testament saints as well, with the number 24 representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That's possible. But again, it's hard to be distinct. The point is that they are around the throne as these majestic, as a part of the majestic presence of God offering to him worship. And then there's a second group around the throne described as four living creatures. These are universally recognized as angelic beings, but who exactly are they? Well, they share attributes from the Old Testament with both seraphim who surround the throne in Isaiah chapter 6-2. You remember when, when Isaiah saw his vision of the Lord highly exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple, and there were these angels that were flying around, identified as seraphim singing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. There's some association there, but there's some direct or distinct differences The most direct link to this group is actually found in the book of Ezekiel and to the cherubim, the class of cherubim that are mentioned there. In their glory as God is revealing himself as coming in a war chariot empowered there by the cherubim with eyes full within and wings and these majestic presence who help display the majestic presence of God. This identification is supported by the fact that cherubim play a significant role throughout Scripture with God's presence, His judgment, and His salvation. It's cherubim that were stationed in the garden to protect it from any human entrance after man was expelled. They were there in Genesis 3.24 to protect man from coming close to the, garden, or the, to the tree of life. It was cherubim in their form that was hammered of gold and sit atop the mercy seat, if you'll remember, on the Ark of the Covenant. It was the cherubim who were on top, their wings, they were facing towards each other and their wings touching each other over the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. 
In Solomon's temple, he made two cherubim cherub that were approximately 15 feet tall, made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold and placed in the inner sanctuary. And their wings were touching the walls and their images were carved into the walls with other images related most likely to the Garden of Eden in 1 Kings chapter 6. The cherubim are associated with the divine name, Psalm 81, you who are enthroned above the cherubim. Probably the identification here, these majestic holy angels who are consistently presented and associated with God's judgment, with God's redemption, with God's presence. Just to give you an example of some of the connections that we'll see with Ezekiel in chapter 1. You'll remember this vision that Ezekiel saw and he saw four living beings in verse 5. Their appearance, they had human form. They had four faces, four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet like a calf's hook. They gleamed like burnished bronze. It's a terrifying picture of their power and their ability to move quickly. Their wings touched one another, picking up again even on the imagery of the temple and what was carved there and above the mercy seat. They did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. He describes their form of their faces, had the face of a man, face of a lion, the face of a bull, the face of the eagle, the very ones that are describing those in Revelation. And he goes on to describe them in great glory. He mentions even an expanse that was above their heads, something resembling a throne. And here were these great and glorious beings are before the throne that John sees in heaven. They have, they're described as having eyes all around and within, which mark their perfect knowledge and the exalted status of their being as servants of God. They have each four, or each of them has a face that mirrors the description in Ezekiel. Now the difference in Ezekiel is that each one of the cherubim there were said to each possess these four faces of a man and of a calf and of a and so forth. Here, those images are assigned to each individual creature, the four living creatures. And so he says in verse Seven, the first creature was like a lion, the second a calf, the third the face of a man, and the fourth creature like that of a flying eagle. What is the meaning of this? Well, there's a variety of directions that could go. I think most significantly, and, and very often, what this is understood, and I would agree with it, is that they are a composite picture of all of creation. These angelic beings are the epitome and the representation of all of God's creation that is designed to worship Him. That are designed to give Him praise, that are designed to give Him glory, and so they do. The description and the response of those around the throne then are all captured in this one word, worship. Worship. This is why He created us. This is why he saved us, and this is the very essence of creation and the covenant. And so let's look then, finally, at the, what's going on. What are, these, what are these creatures around the throne doing? What are these 24 elders doing? What are these four living creatures doing? He says, first, of the four living creatures, verse 8, each of them having six wings full of eyes around and within, day and night, 
They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Building on, though at the same time echoing the praise again of the seraphim that are surrounding the exalted Christ in the vision or the pre-incarnate Christ in the vision of Isaiah chapter 6. And the first expression of worship flows from an overwhelming sense of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Some want to see in that repetition of three, three uh, of holy, a representation of the Trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but that's not the way it's being used here. Not to say that's impossible. But the idea here, following the use of Hebrew language in this kind of, this kind of expression, it is to emphasize the reality of holiness. It is to give an intensity to the idea of the holiness of God. It certainly includes His triune glory, but that's not the point here. It is to mark Him off as the Holy One. The Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty Almighty is bound to his holiness, but specifically it exalts his power, his omnipotent power, his infinite power. And that is the key of the whole passage, is that of God's authority, his power, and his majesty. This is what sets him off from all of creation. You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 40, in giving an exalted view of God, showing that there is none like him on earth. No idol can capture him. Remember what he said of the nations. They are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. As less than nothing and meaningless. And so is the picture here of the Holy Holy who stands above all of the world's mounted rebellion against him. All of the authority and the might of man cowers and is encompassed in this great and majestic glory of God. Is burned up before the presence of God. He's described here twice before you get to the worship of the elders as the one who lives forever and ever, captured there in the praise of the four living creatures, who was and who is and who is to come, which is to say the eternal one, the one who stands behind creation as the one who brought all things into being, the one who stands over creation and who rules it for his own purposes and glory, and the one who is coming to reclaim creation when he establishes his kingdom and his presence fills all in all. He is the eternal one. And again, this is meant to stand in contrast to all the temporary power and all the temporary glories of the world, all of which will fade away. All of which who will shown to be nothing. They're all temporary. Whatever mounted and collected glory that the world can present is temporary. It'll fade. It blows away with the wind. But he's meant here to say the one who sits on the throne will never Leave, never cease to be. He is the eternal one. He is ultimate reality. He is the one who brought all things into being and rules over all things. It's central to the understanding of him as the one who will bring judgment and redemption. It is a further declaration that creation in every aspect exists by and for the purposes of God and his alone. 
It is impossible to understand the reason for anything apart from this reality that God is creator. And that's precisely then what is extolled by these 24 elders who are around the throne. In verse 9, the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. And in response to that act of worship, then the 24 elders following the four living creatures will then fall down before him in an act of worship who sits on the throne and they'll worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne in acknowledgement that he is the one who has the, is the sole giver of authority. He is the one who has the sole right to reign and it is for his glory and so what do they say in verse 11 then worthy are you our Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created and that then forms the very foundation of all of the worship and everything that is to come look in the middle for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created That's the sum of it, that all things exist because God brought it into existence, that all things exist to fulfill His purposes, that all things exist to fulfill His purposes which have the end of His glory. That's the point. Because God is God, because He created all things, it means then that He has absolute rights over all of creation. And it is no mystery then that a world that stands in rebellion to God wants to attack that very thing, that God is creator, that there is a creator, that there is one above man. Why does every totalitarian form of government have to get rid of religion? Because you can't have two sources of authority. God is either absolute and transcendent and the sole one who has authority and glory or it's man. And the establishment here is that God alone created all things and because of his will they existed. Because of his will and for his will. And this is always throughout scripture. This sole reality what God presents as the reason why we are to trust him and why he has all rights over what he has made. When it comes to the mystery of his providence, most significantly demonstrated in the book of Job, that God by his own decision, yes, using the instrument of Satan as his evil purposes, could ordain that Job would lose everything, that his family would die, his property would die, and his health would go away, and his wife would reject him. And Job struggled with that. He struggled with how God could do that to him, how God could in any way justify himself to treat him in this way. And what does God point him to in Job? Where were you? Can you command the wind? Do you know about the birthing of animals up in the cliffs of the rock? Did you tell the sea this far you'll come and no further? Can you humble the mightiest of creatures? Can you direct the lightning where it goes? Do you tell the wind where to blow? Do you know where the storehouses of snow are? Tell me, Job, if you know, if you can look at creation and tell me the smallest thing about why it exists as it does, then you can question me in my providence. And what did Job say? He said, I shut my mouth. I don't know anything. 
Why can God rule as he wants to? Because it's his creation. When it comes to the inscrutable mystery of God's sovereignty in salvation, what does he point to when man chaffs at that and struggles with that? And says, well, how is it right for God to choose those who will be in his kingdom while letting the others go their way by a sovereign decision of an eternal God? What is he saying? You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Doesn't God have that right? He made it. He can do what he wants with it. God is not charged with injustice. He is not charged with any wrong. He is not charged with sin. But the only response that we have as creatures before this God is to shut our mouth and believe him and serve him and obey him. And that's what he says. When we wonder about the mystery of his providence, why does he let evil rise? Why does he let it go? Why does he bring hardships and trial? Because he's the creator and he's wise and he's fulfilling his purpose. Trust him. Why does he choose some to come to see his glory in Christ and his salvation and others he leave to go their own way in darkness? Because he is the potter and he makes the clay as he wants to. That's why. And he's good. When man is ripe for judgment and man is ready to receive from God his judging hand, what is the manifestation of man's rejection? What is the manifestation of God's sin that he most points to? It is this, that they reject him as creator. They did not honor him. It says in verse 20, for all of the creation, all of his power, his glory, his divine nature have been clearly seen. I didn't put it up here, but I didn't get it to Kevin in time. The picture of the Webb telescope, have you all seen that? It's just mesmerizing. They have a picture of galaxies that are billions and billions of light years away and across. And the caption under one of these pictures was that the area of space that we're seeing is comparable to like a grain of sand if you held it up to the universe like this. And God, oh, there it is. Good job, Kevin. That's like a grain of sand. We can't even imagine what we see in that little picture. And God created that by his will and for his own purposes. And man looks at that and says, there is not a creator that I have to serve and that deserves my worship. And that's what he says here. It's clearly seen. They are without excuse, man who rejects him as the maker of all things, and instead exchange it for the glory of an incorruptible, or the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed creatures and so forth. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then what will the man do when we reject the creator is we reject even the plain and obvious sense of nature. And the very first thing he identifies is sexual relations that are unnatural, that are against nature. Why? Because if God is rejected as creator, then we get to make it up as we want. When God wants to assure his people of the certainty of his purpose, what does he do? He points to himself as creator. He says later, 
if you remember in Isaiah chapter 40, to tell his people in captivity who are surrounded by the idolatry of Babylon, who see only Jerusalem and the great glory of Solomon's temple that lay in ruins and there in a foreign land. And God says, but don't worry about that. I have a promise I will bring about. How does he assure people to say that everything your eyes see is not the story but what I promise? He says this in verse 26, lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created the stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. That's the God who made the promise. That's the God who will bring it about because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. The very work of Christ, the very purpose of creation was to redeem what is rightfully his. In Colossians 1. All of creation is redeemed by the work of Christ. All of creation and its very purpose is to praise and exalt and give honor to the God who made all things and then ultimately to the one who ordained sin but ordained the redemption of a people from sin to exalt and glorify his son. Which we'll come into in chapter 5. One said this, Today vast stress is laid upon the thought that God is personal. This is Packer in his book, Knowing God. Today vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. He is personal. But unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows towards them, the Bible never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all creatures. And so what is the theme of the Bible and the theme of this scene, this little glimpse into the glory of the throne room of God that he wants us to understand? And it is simply this, God reigns. God reigns. God rules over his creation. God will fulfill his purposes. God will bring about everything that he said. And God will be worshipped. And it is that worship that fills the throne room of heaven and that will fill all of eternity. From all the redeemed and every created thing. And that is, I would add to this, as we come to the Lord's table, is the ultimate mark of God's people. They're worshipers. The Father seeks who? Those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Who are the Christians? Those who worship in the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Those who can hear words like this and can see a vision of God like this and everything in the deepest part of their being says, yes, I only want to give you more of that. And longs for the day when that will happen. Worship. It's what it means to be a believer, is we worship. We give our lives as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to him. It's our spiritual service of worship. We're worshipers. And that's what he's leading us to and wants us to lay hold of. 
And as we come to the table, we worship him. We say, this is the God whom we have trusted. This is the kingdom where we have staked our citizenship. This is the one whom we anticipate to come. We are, in taking these elements, acknowledging that it is his world, his redemption, his kingdom, and he is our only hope and our trust. And so as we come to the table, let's worship him who is, who was, and who is, and who is to come, and has redeemed us by his own blood, his own sacrifice, his own suffering, to give us a kingdom that we do not deserve and for eternity to lavish the riches of his kindness on us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you that in your eternal plan of marked by wisdom and infinite goodness that you have redeemed for yourself a people who will worship you. Give us a sense of the greatness of your love, but Lord, we realize that that prayer cannot be answered until we have a sense of the greatness of the one who has extended that love to us, who is the creator of all things, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the one whose majesty and power and holiness and glory we can't even begin to fathom. But as great as you are and as separate as you are in your infinite glory from us who are finite creatures, we do ask that by your spirit you would unfold to us little glimpses more and more of that glory that we might worship you more rightly, more fully, more completely and trust you more wholly with all that we are. We thank you for giving us the reminder of your great redemption and bringing us into these realities in your table. And so to that end, Lord, we ask that you would bless our remembrance. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.